So much would love to see your faces. Wanting, wanting. But I see your eyes, and, um, and I can tell, even without being able to see the whole face, that you had what is sometimes described as the vipassana facelift. <laughs> Drop a few years. Um, and I have to say that seeing the, what feels like a kind of radiance, um, and maybe you feeling it after, especially after you began to erupt with words. Um, uh, gives me seeing that radiance, knowing that vital energy that is part of our nature. Um, gives me so much confidence. And then also, and although I haven't um, spoken to all of you, but I have to some of you, and the sweetness, how this also gives me so much confidence that the nature of our heart, when in relatively safe circumstances, it's, we're kind, we're sweet, we're caring. Uh, And it, of course, that's a. Uh, we never forget that uh, our that that natural sweetness often gets occluded. It gets blocked, and through so many systemic causes, greed, hatred, ignorance, and all the many ways that we. Uh, through misperception, through seeing through the clouded lens of our, um, our likes and dislikes, our views and opinions, uh, we create so much uh, ill will and so much separation. And this is why the, the teachings... invite us to look deeply into our nature, to realize the sky-like nature of the mind, the limitless, boundless nature of our heart, the capacity of our heart to, to have uh, loving kindness for all beings, have no one left out of your, of your um, circle of affection. That's the potential, and that's what we practice to reawaken. It's innate in us. That's one part of practice, but the other part of practice is uh, caring for this world that is filled with uh, people who aren't doing this. Um, Of course, not attuning to the fact that there are in spite of the new cycle, which will mostly give us the view that there is only the, um, the great suffering, only the things that drive us mad, that in the midst of that there are 
to countless beings who are sweet like you, (laughs) who are bright. But I was thinking right now of a teaching from a teacher I refer to a lot named Nisargadat Maharaj from another tradition. But wisdom is wisdom. I'm multi-spiritual. Or Pali, as Eugene said, I'm (laughs) poly-spiritual. But he says, Nisargadat, he says, And I think this has guided my life a lot. He says, the world is the way it is because people are the way they are. And as long as people are the way they are, the world will keep being the way it is. That if we really want a peaceful world, a a kind world, a sweet world, there has to be peaceful, wise, kind people. It's not something we can impose on the world. It has to start, not only start within ourselves, but we have to do everything we can. But it, ha- but it, it has to begin by each of you. You may not appreciate this, but what you have been doing here, in spite of what your, your conditioned mind may have told you, that this is maybe, maybe some of you probably for few times thought it was selfish or indulgent or just for me or whatever. To me, it is the most radical social action that you can engage in. It doesn't get a lot of um, press, but, but it really is, it, it makes a difference in this world, your practice. And it even makes that much more difference if you dedicate your practice, if you make conscious that your practice uh, is not just about yourself. It's dedicated. And as I often, in my own mind, I dedicate it to the people who have to live around me every day. But I shared some bits and pieces from a poem the other night And I wanted to read the whole poem to you tonight, since um, it both it offers a few instructions about about going home. And I'm going to talk a lot about going home tonight, but I'm also going to to use the example of the of the Buddha's awakening uh, to highlight some of the things that we can attuned to as we uh, live our lives and continue to awaken in the midst of it all. Remember, wherever you go, there you are. Wherever you go, whether you're walking, sitting, moving, you're always right where you are. Is it not true? While I'm talking about that, I want to share something that I've, that's been very meaningful for me. I had the good fortune and of doing a lot of long practice periods, you know, several, several um, three-month long periods. And, you know, I have to say that I didn't, 
shrouded by uh, privilege, shrouded by privilege, I didn't really even appreciate how, what good fortune I had to be able to, to um, drop out of, of the kind of speedy life of, of, that's often defined by busyness to, and really drop in for long periods of time. But I happened to, each time that I finished, especially at the retreats that I attended at the Insight Meditation Society in Barrie, Massachusetts, uh, which was just a fantastic center and is a fantastic center, sister center to Spirit Rock, for those of you who don't know. Just prior to leaving at the end of the early long practice periods I did, I used to get kind of anxious. Any of you feel a little anxiety today about, about this transition? You know, isn't it amazing how, how nothing happened, really? And, it, and I, fortunately, later on, I heard that line from, from Yogi Berra, uh, or no, it was from Mark Twain, I'm sorry. <laughs> Two of my favorite philosophers. <laughs> but Mark Twain is said to have said, you know, I've had many difficulties in my life, most of which never happened. And I used to scare myself. And then it dawned on me that... I was, um, that the way I was scaring myself was the way that I was framing the retreat and leaving the retreat. And I had fallen right into the, the common way of thinking. And we don't even realize how our language, how we speak to ourselves, how we frame things, affects our nervous system, affects our sense of well-being, and often creates the conditions where we... Um, we don't feel like we can really rest in that natural great peace. And the way that I was framing it is that I'm going to take this little tender practice that I've been nurturing for all these months, and I'm going to take it into this bad, scary world. It sounds pretty reasonable, doesn't it? doesn't sound like how it is from a conventional sense. Few things in that, in that way of framing it. I made myself up as a very small, vulnerable, tender creature. Which, you know, on one hand, I am from time to time. I'm not defined by that. But I created myself as a very fragile person. And I created the world in my mind as a really big, bad, ugly place. Now, how many times in the last... In your whole life, have you created the world in your mind as a big, bad, horrible place? And it's very, very easy. There's plenty of evidence. You can make a case for the prosecution really easily. But again, I hadn't gone anywhere. Nothing had happened. And I had constructed this reality, little me, taking my practice into my daily life, which is conventionally true. We're all leaving here, we're going home. 
But then when I looked more carefully in a slightly more meditative way about what actually happens in the process of integrating uh, my practice, is that that process of either going home or um, travel or packing, that whole process happens one moment at a time. And one moment of that process, I can navigate beautifully. And it's, tr- and it's also true that I can't navigate the next moment. I could, if I need to plan, I can plan right now for a moment. If I need to remember something, I can remember something for a moment. But I can only handle a moment's worth. The past moments are gone. The next ones have not occurred. There's really only this one. And it dawned on me that these moments that I have to engage in, that I do engage in as I transition from the retreat, packing, anticipating, if I, I, the first three-month retreat I did, I drove cross-country. And so at first I hadn't been in a car. I sat in the car and simulated driving. <laughs> Turned on the engine. Throughout that entire process, I, didn't, I was right where I was. And then I drove out of IMS... And I was just exactly where I was, sitting in that chair. The scene was changing. The, the fields of, of Pennsylvania, and I actually slid off the road on my first. <laughs> and I somehow, and I thought it was what I called Dharma karma. It was good fortune that I didn't get injured, but it was winter. I, but I never left where I am. Still, the scene is changing. Finally, I get home to my uh, home and my to-do list, and there it is. But I haven't moved at all. Still right where I am. And the moments that I remember that I'm embodied, and there's a reason why, why the Buddha emphasized this so much. I realized embodied... Then my senses are open. I can know what I'm, I'm doing. I'm thinking or, I'm in, or feeling sensations or feeling the need to eat or whatever it might be. But I'm, I'm, I can remember easier that I'm always here. I talked about this the other night. That I'm here even if I don't rem- even when I don't remember. So when I realized that this is where my practice is. I realize that I don't... And when I'm here and I feel it, I'm strong. I'm fierce. I am boundless, just like you may have tasted. I'm not... And I'm not defined by any of that. I'm just present. Just present. 
very and very responsive when I'm present. You know, in the in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, they say that our that our nature, just our what is nature in us, is uh, it's the essence of us is this openness that's uncaused, it's unconditioned. The essence is open or empty. Empty sometimes turns people off, but open is more workable. The essence is empty. The nature of that that openness is clarity, is or otherwise known as cognizance, awareness. Again, uncaused. And the expression of that open clarity is what they call unconfined capacity. So all the qualities of intelligence, kindness, skillfulness, everything flows from where we are always already. Place we have never really left. So this idea of little me, the small version of me playing in my mind that's going back into my big life, that's so scary, just made me so anxious. Made me anxious for a few reasons. One, because I had constructed myself, the world is scary and me is as small. But I had also set it up that my well-being, my sense of happiness, depended on what happens. Depends on what happens next. And easily forgetting that the happiness, remember I think I read something, that the only happiness worth that name is the happiness of being conscious. Any other happiness is unreliable. Just sets us up to be perpetually in a state of suspended happiness, dependent on how things turn out. That is a recipe for anxiety and fear because we associate our happiness with a future that truly never arrives. Because what we find when we sit, we come on retreat, is time is only and always now. When I talk in this way, I think of the teacher Alan Watts, who said, uh, how did he say it? He says, the, I'm having a deja vu, so maybe I said this already. <laughs> okay. The purpose, he says, uh, the purpose of music is not to reach the end of the composition. If that were the purpose of music, the fastest players would be the best. When we dance, the point isn't to arrive at a particular place on the floor as in um, aiming for a destination. When we dance, the dance itself is the point. When we meditate, the point of our practice is always arrived at at the present moment. So if you're living for, a, for, uh, 
for an uh, for something. How can I say that? If you have an, a motive to get somewhere, you're not, actually not practicing. You're caught in this suspended, suspended well-being. You're caught in the samsaric loop, which means you, this endless weight, the sense that I alluded to the other night of of um, of going. I'll get to the the final reframe, but I want to tell a little story from the from the numbered suttas. I think it's the the chapter of fours in the what's called the Anguttara Nikaya. I know that Victoria read from it, and maybe Eugene did too. But there's one a story about a a um, person named a son of a deva, a son of a celestial being. And these can either be literal or figurative, who knows, but they're hopefully useful. But this is about a, this uh, son of a deva named Rohitasa. And Rohitasa uh, went to see the Buddha and, and told him that in the previous life he had been um, Rohitasa also, but Rohitasa, the skywalker, he could walk through space so fast that he could reach a target before an arrow could reach it. And he, he wanted to, he had some fundamental dissatisfaction, even as a deva. You know, they're not entirely liberated, entirely content entirely free. And he had this desire, as often is the case when you see how, how hard it is to keep going through this cycle of, of wanting something, getting it, having it, having a little temporary, having a temporary bit of relief, and then in the wake of it, another desire, and it just keep the golden dreams keep moving, and you just keep going, and it's exhausting. And it at some point, there's a desire that arises, plus it's hard being a desire to come to the end of this cycle of dissatisfaction. And so Rohitasa had the bright idea of trying to walk to the end of the world, walk to the end of, of all the the cycles of existence. Somehow he, in a certain kind of delusion, he said, well, maybe I can walk there. <laughs> um, and then he walked for 115 years. You know, devas live longer. Deva means celestial being or angel. He walked for 115 years and then died. And he was reborn. Came back to see the Buddha and says. And the first thing he asked Lord Buddha, is it possible to reach the end of the world, the end of all the seeking, the end of becoming, the end of all this hope and fear? Is it possible to come to the end of it by going? And the Buddha said, no. It's not. And he says, oh, that's great that you're finally telling me. You can't, can't do it by going. He says, 
But the Buddha then says, but only those who reach the end of the world become liberated. But then he gave the, what we call the pith instructions, which is a version of the Four Noble Truths that, that uh, Victoria shared last night. First truth, within this fathom long body, with its senses and perceptions, we find the world. Always here. The world, and what do we find when we find this world here in this body? We find sickness, aging, death, dissatisfaction, uh, things that are hard to bear, stress, uh, uh, just difficulties, one element of what we find here. Within this fathom long body lies the world. Not somewhere else, not some world that we make up in our imagination, but right here, if our eyes are open, our sense is clear, we see it's not a picnic. And remember, all these teachings are not meant to be pessimistic. They're meant to be optimistic. Remember that the Buddha was called Sukhiya, the happy one. It's all about happiness. But it seems this constant running from the world, running from the way it is, keeps us from, being, from finding the natural happiness of being conscious. The happiness that is, that is completely natural to us when we're not looking ahead and not looking back. And even when we are looking ahead and looking back and noticing it. And when we talk about happiness, we, the Buddha said that the highest happiness is peace. And I think if you think about what you're, what you're looking for at the end of the rainbow, isn't it? To be able to say, ah, just like that feeling when the bell rings, ah. But see, when we wait for it, when we look for it, we prevent, it, we prevent ourselves from actually, we postpone it. We say, I have to, the bell has to ring in order for me to go, ah. Why don't we just do ah all the time? First things first, let's find happiness. Because the world, the, the world of of uh, consumerism, the capitalism, will just say, as one cartoon or caption once said in an advertisement, it was an advertisement, to be one with everything, you have to have one of everything. <laughs> it was an advertisement for a, a Ford pickup truck. And then just so cynical, it's a, uh, find inner peace, <laughs> the Ford Ranger. <laughs> but innocently, we've been sold that notion that, that our well-being is associated with going, going toward 
And in a conventional sense, we do go, go toward liberation. That's one way to talk about it. We go toward social justice. We go toward, we go toward care for our planet. We go toward living a healthy life. But the fact is, we don't really go anywhere. That the beginning of our path is here. Our path is here, even as the, the world is going by at 85 miles per hour, here. And the end of the path is here. So the Buddha said, within this fathom-long body, with its senses and perceptions, lies the world. Within this fathom-long body, with its senses and perceptions, lies the cause of the world means the cause, as Victoria spoke about, the cause of what keeps it spinning, what turns the, the basic stresses that everyone, that are universal, into mental suffering and searching. And this endless search, what turns it into searching, is this state of, of craving that clouds our perception and makes, it th- makes us feel without ever having left here, makes it feel like this is not the only place we live is just a pass-through on our way to, to where we'll really find happiness. So then, the, fortunately, the Buddha said, within this fathom-long body, with its senses and perception, lies the end of the world. And finally, lies the path leading to the end of the world. So there is, um, so I'll give you the punchline on the reframing of the retreat, and then I'll talk more about the, the, um, the world, that it's really important to stay in touch with, uh, both inner and outer. So what helped me from having framed the leaving of a retreat to uh, integrating my little practice into my big life, when I reframed it more accurately as I'm going to integrate my life that comes to me into my practice, which is right where I am. And so in a fundamental way, I don't need to, just to use Eugene, a, a Eugene, I don't have to do anything. I don't have to go anywhere. I can continue to, to nurture that which t- puts me in touch with that inexhaustible sense of life, uh, kind of the, 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 uh, the life that is, that's not so personal, that's just the real living experience. Because my mental experience, especially unattended to, constructs, um, constructs uh, obstacles in, in many ways and constructs a version of, of my life that um, diminishes uh, 
the, the strength and well-being and the power that each of us is right now. Uh, that's why I borrow from other traditions, because um, the Hafez, whoever, the translator of Hafez, he says, he says, I know the voice of depression still calls to you in his poem called Cast All Your Votes for Dancing. I know those habits that can ruin your life still send their invitations. But you're with the friend now and you look so much stronger. You can stay that way and even bloom. Keep squeezing drops of the sun from your prayers and works and music and from your companion's beautiful laughter. Keep squeezing drops of the sun from the sacred hands and glance of your beloved. And any, everyone can be your beloved. And, and my dear, from the most insignificant movements of your own holy body. You think that's any less important when you leave here? It's 100% more important to stay embodied. And then here's his warning in this poem. It says, keep squeezing drops of the sun from the sacred hands and glance of your beloved and my dear from the most insignificant movements of your own holy body. Learn to recognize the counterfeit coins that may buy you just a moment of pleasure, but then drag you for days like a broken man behind a farting camel. I'll leave the rest of the poem alone. (laughs) But all the more important that we stay embodied. One teacher named uh, Reginald Ray put it, as we've seen, our modern disembodiment means that people live largely within the conceptual world of their own making, attempting to handle experiences by fitting them into a continuous conceptual narrative of their I or ego. The more disembodied we are, stay here, the more disembodied we are, the more strident and compulsive this incessant narrative becomes. In addition, the more disembodied we are, the more isolated and disconnected we are not just from our emotions, but from a feeling of connection with other people and the larger world. So it is our embodiment that actually allows us that unconfined capacity to respond, to have our eyes open, to not because somebody told you to be a bodhisattva, to dedicate your life to the welfare of all beings, but you see that's the only thing to do. When your eyes are open, you see there is no, as, we, as that meditation was pointing to, there is no inside or outside. There's, there's just us. Let me just read a little bit more. Our disconnection and isolation are reflected in the high degree of of personalism. Everything is about me, narcissism and individualism. I'm a free agent with no inherent ties or obligation to anyone or anything found in modern societies. 
The personalism and individualism that mark modern people is, in other words, a direct function of their disembodiment. It appears to be true that emotions seem especially overwhelming and frightening for us modern people because of our overly disembodied individualistic understanding of them. In other cultures, emotions are often understood within a much larger, less individualistic context. This is about emotions, and it's about how when someone, you know, because we think it's out there, in, in some of the more traditional villages, and particularly in this, in the, with the Dagara people of, of this healer named Maladoma in, from Africa, he says that when someone in his village is taken over by a strong emotion, the entire village attends to that person. The reason is that among the Dagara people of Maladoma's homeland, strong emotion is never about one person alone, but rather about the village community itself. In, in their highly charged emotional state, a certain person is understood to be giving birth to something that the entire village needs to know and needs to address. Just think if we were to regard everything we see in this world as uh, a message, all the cries. So both from a, a worldly standpoint and from a, from a meditative and from a, a liberation standpoint, I'm going to read, I'm going to annoy you by reading the full little sutta from the Buddha about mindfulness directed to the body that, that uh, I alluded to the, uh, earlier in the retreat. It says, even as one who encompasses with their mind the mighty ocean includes thereby all the rivulets that run into the ocean, just so, O monks, whoever develops and cultivates mindfulness directed to the body includes thereby all the wholesome states that partake of supreme knowledge. One thing, O monks, if developed and cultivated, leads to a strong sense of urgency, to great benefit, to great security from bondage, to mindfulness and clear comprehension, to the attainment of vision and knowledge, to a pleasant dwelling in this very life, to the realization of the fruit of knowledge and liberation. What is that one thing? It is mindfulness directed to the body. If one thing, O monks, is developed and cultivated, the body is calmed, the mind is calmed, discursive thoughts are quieted, and all wholesome states that partake of supreme knowledge reach the fullness of development. He doesn't say anything about you need to be on retreat for this. How far do you have to travel to know where you to know your body? If one thing, O oh monks, is developed and cultivated, ignorance is abandoned. Supreme knowledge arises. Delusion of self is given up. Where is yourself right now? The self-idea. Where's the past now? Where's the future now? 
Supreme knowledge arises, delusion of self is given up, the underlying tendencies are eliminated. That refers to the, the tendencies to react and the reactivity that causes us to go seeking. The fetters are discarded. Fetters are those things that, that um, keep us really bound to, the, to delusion. One big fetter I spoke of the other night is the comparing mind. Another fetter, fetter is aversion. Another fetter is grasping. Another fetter is the, is the mistaken belief in self. There's, there's restlessness as a fetter. That's one of the last ones to quiet down. I'll keep going. This is the part that I thought might be irritating. <laughs> they do not partake of the deathless who do not partake of mindfulness directed to the body. They partake of the deathless, the timeless, the deathless, who partake of mindfulness directed to the body. The deathless is lost to those who have lost mindfulness directed to the body. Not lost is the deathless to those who have not lost mindfulness directed to the body. They will fail to reach the deathless who fail in mindfulness directed to the body. They gain the deathless who gain mindfulness directed to the body. They neglect the quest for the deathless who neglect mindfulness directed to the body. They do not neglect the quest for the deathless who do not neglect mindfulness directed to the body. They forget the deathless who forget mindfulness directed to the body. They do not forget the deathless who do not forget mindfulness directed to the body. They are undeveloped in the quest for the deathless who are undeveloped in mindfulness directed to the body. Well, what could be more challenging in a way, but more simple? Um, you You know where you need to look. Isn't this the last place we tend to look? Don't we immediately go into the dominance of the rational mind, as all of us have spoken in different ways, of figuring it out? Victoria said, can't do it by writing or reading. But so dominated by the rational mind, so innocently because we love ourselves, want to figure it out, that we lose, we become disembodied. So... Mindfulness directed to the body opens up that other kind of awareness, that intuitive awareness, that, that, um, that openness, that intimacy that allows for insight, that unfiltered experience of life, allows that clarity and that un, um, uh, unconfined capacity to flow the capacity to, to realize the deathless, that in us which is not born, doesn't die. As Thich Nhat Hanh put it, this body is not me. But look, but the paradox, we need the body. For this. this body is not me, I'm not caught in this body. I am life without boundaries. I have never been born and I have never died. Since beginningless time, I've always been free. Now, rather this, than this being an idea, 
the possibility through the body is for this to have, be an, uh, an everyday accessible experience. They, they have not comprehended the deathless who have not comprehended mindfulness directed to the body. They have comprehended the deathless who have comprehended mindfulness directed to the body. They have not realized the deathless who have not realized mindfulness directed to the body. They have realized the deathless who have realized mindfulness directed to the body. How are you feeling after that? So in the few minutes that I have left, we'll try to fill in the gaps of how to stay in your body in your daily life and how to how to surround yourself with the support that you need to remember what needs to be remembered. When the Buddha was called the happy one, his teachings of the Noble Eightfold Path, that fourth noble truth that Victoria spoke of last night, his teachings reflected his experience. You can see them as the unfolding of his evolving understanding of happiness, of how to be happy. And what he realized is that that what gave him a very happy life in general, a general happy life, Uh, and sometimes a life of a lot of bliss was uh, living a life of harmlessness, of, of a committedness to not causing any suffering in anyone's life, not causing oneself suffering, not causing suffering for anyone else. With speech, with livelihood, with action, with the use of intoxicants, with, um, I, I don't remember if I said speech already, but he saw in his own life that a great cause for happiness was what he called the, the bliss of blamelessness. In fact, when he listed the four kinds of worldly happiness that we can experience, having, having uh, enough resources, wealth, etc., that's one kind of happiness. Did, never denied that. And then actually being able to enjoy it. It's one thing to have it. That brings a little pleasure. And then being able to enjoy it, another kind of pleasure. And then he said the third kind of worldly happiness was being debt-free. And that's something we need to remember. So much stress caused from debt. So much having to associate our well-being with time and what's next when we're bound in debt. And our culture just encourages. uh, It's a debt culture. But then the fourth one, there's there's resources, enjoyment, there's... um, there's debt. The fourth one he called um, debt, blamelessness. And he said that's 16 times more valuable than the first three. And he saw that, that 
that living in a non-harming way, making it, making it in, uh, impeccable in your actions of body, of speech, of mind, the way you talk to yourself, the way you talk to others, the way you act in this world, that this is a fundamental cause for happiness and well-being. And conduct also includes dana, as you spoke, as I don't know what they said about it, but it's a reliable cause of joy, joy of thinking about it, joy of, of expressing it, joy of remembering it, brings joy. So conduct is a really important ground. And that ground to help us feel, feel okay being here, feel safe with ourself at least, and then giving others the gift of fearlessness, which is, means the gift of other people not having to be afraid of you, at least in your initial circle, other people can, can relax around you. And that just feeds maybe widening concentric circles of, of safety. And it's, our little, it's a, little, a little hit in our world of being a benefit. There are much more grand and, and important things that we can do and need to do. But it starts right here. But the Buddha also said that, that this foundation of what he called sila, or conduct, without it, without that as your ground, to try to meditate and really discover the deathless, really stay here, really tap into all those, uh, that unconfined capacity. If you don't have sila, if you don't have conduct, it's like trying to row a boat across a river, but not untying it from the dock. It just doesn't go anywhere. Mind is reverberating from the effects of our action. And of course we've all acted body, speech, and mind in ways that have caused ourselves and others harm. And all that can be put to good use in terms of forgiveness, in terms of self-compassion, in terms of letting it turn into the action to benefit others. And I know there are many activists in here. But the ground of all this is sila. But then the Buddha talked about the essential need to train, train the heart to stay here. From the moment you wake up in the morning to the time you go to bed. This is I had a feeling this might happen. I'll read this. This is a little bit in the same vein. Do not pursue the past. Do not lose yourself in the future. The past no longer is. The future has not yet come. Look deeply at life as it is in the very here and now. The practitioner dwells in stability and freedom. We must be diligent today to wait until tomorrow is too late. Death comes unexpectedly. How can we bargain with it? The sage calls a person who knows how to dwell in mindfulness night and day, one who knows the better way to live. The quote that I wanted to 
share was from the Buddha was, it's called one fortunate attachment. You might want to do a search on it. And just about um, just committing to continuity of practice in our daily life, wherever you go, there you are. And when the Buddha developed that steadiness of mind, he had all kinds of experiences, which you will too, of immediacy, of, of lights, of all kinds of things. But he saw that those things were inspiring, but they also corrupt your practice because you end up looking for them all the time. So he saw that the happiness that comes from a well-collected mind, it's a beautiful thing and it heals our nervous system, but it's not liberation. But to develop our mind, to develop our, the conditions that lead to concentration for the purpose of studying our experience moment to moment. We can do that anywhere. And what he saw over and over, and what we sh- one should reflect on every day and notice is, as we have all said, whatever arises, passes away. Whatever arises and passes away does not give lasting happiness. And whatever arises and passes away cannot really be me or mine. And to realize this over and over, what happened for him is his mind just relaxed. He stopped grasping, stopped pushing away. And his mind fell naturally. If we study the changing nature of things, not study in a book, but real time in our body, his mind relaxed and opened. And in a flash of insight, he realized that what he'd been looking for was none other than the the innermost nature of his own mind. And I'll just leave you with the song that he sang, since my time has run out. He said, through many births, And you can think of this as all the lives we go through in this lifetime. You can think of it other ways too, but he says, through many births in the wandering on, I ran seeking but not finding the maker of this house. O house builder, you've been seen. You shall not build a house again, and you shall not build a house and not be noticed. In other words, we know when we're creating um, a self-story of, of not enough. Oh, house builder, you've been seen. You shall not build a house again. Your rafters have been broken. Your ridgepole destroyed. That's the defilements have been removed. The ignorance has been removed. My mind has gone to the unconditioned, to the deathless, to the fading away, the cessation of, of craving for, for more. All pointing again and again to the importance of staying right where we are and realizing the deathless. And he said that uh, if you aim for this, all the other kinds of pleasure in life come in the wake of it. You don't give up the things of this world, but you understand that they go away. And you aim for that which can't be taken away.
which you are. So thanks for listening. Let's just sit quietly for a moment. May all beings awaken to wisdom and love. Caring for ourselves and all beings. May all beings be liberated.